0: Hey everyone, it's Tim Nelson here. Welcome to this week's podcast, Cause to Cure. This podcast is my personal take as it relates to our team's activities focused on congenital heart disease. My day-to-day experience with the largest dedicated team focused on single ventricle congenital heart disease was founded at Mayo Clinic by the Todd and Karen Wannick Family Program. This team is accountable to the development of new products that aims to cure congenital heart disease. We leverage basic science research and synchronize it with the world's largest clinical trial network to de-risk product development and make it available to our patients. Now, with a nationwide consortium, we are aiming to leverage a clinical trial infrastructure focused on single ventricle congenital heart disease and test and ultimately accelerate the availability of new products. It takes a team of partners to make this happen. Thanks for joining the team. Welcome to this week's podcast, Cause to Cure. This is Tim Nelson. I have the great pleasure of having uh, Meg Roswick with us today. Meg and I have uh, been connected for some time when we met at Feel the Beat originally back some years, and all of you know her. She needs little introduction, Uh, but Meg, welcome to our podcast today.
1: Hi, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It's such an honor to be invited to be on this.
0: Well, you've got a great story, and for those of us that don't remember your full story, give us the, uh, give us the nutshell of, of your story and why we're excited to have you on the podcast today.
1: So just to kind of give a little intro, um, I am 28 years old, and currently I live in San Francisco with my husband, Dustin, who is a nurse. I was born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome in 1991, and I've been involved in the heart community for about 10 years now. Um, I'm a public speaker and talk about the patient perspective in care and advocating for better resources, specifically pertaining to the mental health and CHD. And,
0: uh, I know that you've been uh, a very active member of the community and, and an inspiration to many. Um, you know What got you into this uh, kind of patient advocacy, public speaking role? What drove you into that?
1: So truthfully, I didn't even expect this whatsoever. Um, when I was in college, I growing up, I didn't really have, you know, many major hospitalizations. I had, you know, my normal once a year appointment. Everything had always come back great. I was um, extremely fortunate to not really have that sort of hospital type of experience, Um, like, obviously, excluding when I was younger going through my surgeries, um, but at least kind of growing up. And so in college, um, I was 18 and ended up getting mono. I got my eyes on it so horribly and ended up having to be hospitalized for a week. And I was getting it so much worse than a lot of the other people I was seeing. And it was just a really rough time, especially kind of bringing up more memories of being in the hospital. And I felt just so isolated because I didn't have anyone to kind of talk to about my heart because all of my friends didn't know what it was like to have half of a heart or hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And so I was on Facebook one day and thought that, you know, maybe, maybe I could find one person on Facebook that has um, HLHS or CHD in general. And so it kind of just started as me trying to find friends, essentially, or trying to find people my age that I could relate to because I had no one. And so I created this Facebook page, uh, Megan Roswick HLHS. And um, at first I started having a few people come on, a few people like it. And then all of a sudden this huge community on Facebook started popping up and it was just so incredible to have that sort of connection to people that even though I had never met them before, I was able to relate to people online that I would have never been able to do before. And so kind of through my Facebook page and getting to meet people um, I got invited to a couple of different conferences to speak on the uh, patient perspective and care and kind of what I would like to see done as a patient to kind of improve my quality of life. And so that's kind of how it started originally. I guess it it really started from me feeling so isolated and so misunderstood and just wanting to have connection to, I guess, where we are right now
0: so what year did you were you born
1: i was born, so i was born in 1991
0: yeah so that was early on you don't have a lot of uh, people that you grew up with uh, that was in the hospital or in your in your severe uh, that that you even knew that were older than you did you
1: no not at all and so when i was born in 1991 I was actually given the clean bill of health from the hospital when I was born and sent home. My parents had no idea that I had um, HLHS. Doctors had no idea. And so when I was seven days old, my mom noticed that I was kind of panting to breathe and looked maybe a little bit purplish. But I was her first kid. And so she figured, like, maybe she's just kind of overreacting but called my grandmother, who said, you need to get her to the hospital immediately. And so they both went and brought me to the hospital. And at the first hospital, I lived in a super, super small town in upstate New York, in Norwich, New York. And so at that time, they didn't have anyone there that could diagnose me. Um, They told my parents that, you know, I'm pretty sure she's dying right now. We need to get her to another hospital quick. And so the second hospital in Syracuse, New York, um, diagnosed me with um, hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And so the biggest thing then was that, like you said, like there was really no one um, in front of me so much. And so the doctor told my parents that if it was their kid, they would take them home and uh, let them die through compassionate care because they didn't know many cases that were doing well or alive. And so that was obviously something my parents were just like in shock that this was their current situation. And so they quickly, quickly searched to try to figure out where they could take me, what the options were available for me. At this point in 1991, um, the Norwood procedure, the the three big procedures I had to have Norwood, the Hemi Fontan, the Fontan at the time were, experimental, I guess, together considered. And so we were told, you know, there's a set of three experimental surgeries that she can undergo to try to have her live as good of a life as possible with only half of a heart. And my parents were like, if that's the chance that she has to live, we're just going to go for it. And so there weren't any resources at the time for them. There really weren't any resources for me. The focus was just how can we make this heart survive and how can we make this person survive? And so I had no one surrounding me that was going through it in a similar way and didn't until these resources started popping up probably the past 10 years.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I I know when people hear you speak and hear your story and, and reflect back on that time. It's just a completely different world than what we live in today. But at some levels, it's, it's still the same. Um, these same fears of families getting this diagnosis, the same questions. And uh, in some ways, things haven't changed that much. When did you realize the first time that you were um, unique? When did you realize that, oh, my gosh, I am not surrounded by people that are like me? Do you remember that feeling when you first realized it?
1: I think one of the biggest reasons I don't have a distinct moment of that was because I was a gymnast. And so from the time I was three and a half until the time I was 16 years old, I was in a leotard. So my scar was like on full display all of the time. And I think everyone that I was around got so used to it because I was there and around so much. Um, So no one really had asked me. However, I think when I was around other people and um, you know, they weren't really turning off color (laughs) with their lips or, you know, they were able to go run all of these miles. And I wasn't able to do that. I think that's kind of when I realized things were a little bit different, but I think what really hit me was when I turned um, or like when I became an adult and started kind of looking towards the future, and trying to plan my future, trying to plan a family, trying to figure out a career. Then it kind of came into, whoa, okay, this is a lot different. So college was a kind of a hard time for me.
0: So I'll tell you where I remember you first being like, this is uh, not normal is when I saw the picture of you jumping out of an airplane with uh, on your hands painted, got HLHS. <laughs> Tell me how that photo happened. Is that real or is that photoshopped?
1: So um, the whole story was that I was my mom gave me a present um, at Christmas and as she handed me the box, she said, I just want you to know, I can't get cardiology approval yet. I'm like, what is in this box right now? And so I open it and um, it was a gift certificate to go skydiving. I mean, I'm an adrenaline junkie. I um, love adrenaline. I will do anything uh, to kind of get that rush of just adrenaline going through my veins. And so she knew that this was something I had wanted to do. And immediately the first thing I wanted to do was ask cardiology and try to figure out if we could do this. And so Once that was all approved, we got to the skydiving place, and just about when I was about to go up into the plane, I looked at my mom and I said, oh my gosh, let's do God HLHS on my hands, because I really want this to be (laughs) in your face. We have HLHS, but we can live a normal life, and um, kind of for the people that don't know how their child is going to end up doing or, you know, just want some sort of hope, I figured jumping out of a plane was shocking
0: enough. <laughs> well, you know, Meg, I I jumped out of a plane once too. So, I uh remember that feeling myself and I I remember the feeling being I'm not sure my heart is going to tolerate this thing and and I have a a normal heart <laughs> to the best of my knowledge. Um but I remember that that adrenaline rush for me jumping out of a plane and I did a little bit different. Maybe you—it looks like you did a tandem jump. I did a—I uh, did a static line, as they call it, where you jump out by yourself. Oh but my god! You've got like a—I don't know—hundred, two hundred foot cord that um, pulls the shoot out for you, um, but you're by yourself. Oh, But, that's scary. but I'll tell you that—that that hundred foot drop all by yourself, with the hope that this thing's going to get pulled out of your back. Um, That adrenaline rush for me is once in a lifetime, and I have no desire of ever doing it again because it was way too much of (laughs) adrenaline for me.
1: I can't even imagine. That must have been, yeah, pretty terrifying to be by yourself and just being like, I really hope it's open. (laughs) Yeah, that's scary. It's
0: amazing how many times you can have that thought in in a matter of eight seconds. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Agreed. So Meg, you referenced the college years a little bit. Um, tell me, you know, your memories of talking with your family and going off to college and were you prepared for that? Or were you unprepared for that? What was the conversation you and your family were having planning for college?
1: So I think one of the most interesting things about my college experience was that I was actually just going through transitional care the week before my first day of college, which in retrospect, probably not the best timing. And um, they didn't, like, people didn't have a true transitional care plan back then. And so I didn't even really even get to these big discussions about futuristic things or, you know, future problems or anything like that until I was 18. And so instead of kind of having a gradual progression, like they're more so doing now, it was more one appointment, bam, you're having a calf for the first time in seven years, bam. And so it was just a lot at once, which I think just stirred up a lot, especially transitioning from living at home to college right at this exact time. It was just a lot for me to be taking in. I was prepared in the sense of my parents making sure that I understood how healthcare worked like as far as insurance. I understood what a member number was, and I understood how I um, needed to keep my insurance card on me, how to give it to um, the hospital, how to make an appointment for myself, how to fill out the paperwork, what the paperwork means. And so in that sense, my parents did an awesome job as far as preparing me for that sort of thing when I went to college. But I think one of the big things that I missed out on that I think they're doing now is a lot of the mental health focus, because I went in without a support system set in place because we really weren't aware I needed one at that point in the way that I needed it. And so now healthcare teams are kind of setting that up for patients, especially before going to college. And at that point, we just didn't really have it.
0: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of programs probably are talking about this today, but I I bet you've had the best care in the world in some of the institutions you've had, but tell me a little bit more about that mental health care and what would ideally be in place for everybody that's going through this transition.
1: So, ideally what I would hope or wish to see happen is that people are starting or team healthcare teams are starting to have these conversations earlier starting at even like 14 13 starting to have conversations about what long-term care looks like what long-term care is as far as you know making sure they're coming to their appointments making sure they know how many like they need to be scheduling yearly appointments um medication compliance is a huge thing that I don't think is necessarily talked about in. A mental health way, which I think truthfully has a lot to do with it. I think for myself, there are many times where I just didn't want to take medications or was stubborn when I was younger because I just didn't want to feel different and I didn't want to feel abnormal. It wasn't that I wanted to not take a medication that was helping me. It was that I was just so desperately trying to not feel different and not feel having or not having a constant reminder that I had a heart defect. Every day that I took medication, I felt like it was just a constant reminder. And so that's just kind of things that I don't think many people realize are mental health and automatically assume it's just an insubordinate patient or something like that.
0: I mean, this is stuff that we all are challenged with, I guess, at different stages of our life, right? But uh, I can just imagine the amplification that it was for you, do you know, if is there an HLHS college, uh, Facebook page that, uh, college kids can get together? I don't know.
1: I have, I have not seen anything like that. Um, we, so I have, um, co-organized along with two other single ventricle, uh, patients. We've co-organized this patient education day that we're trying to gear towards um, teenagers and adults to be able to come together and learn about their hearts, learn about kind of all of these transitional care topics, but all together and all as one and being able to connect with one another and being able to meet one another and going through this together and not feeling so alone. Um, that was kind of one of the big things that my, I guess, <laughs> mission, I guess you could say, with wanting to continue trying to provide support for other patients and families, we kind of decided to create this patient day yearly, annually to bring and bringing in different um, healthcare providers, different researchers to kind of come in and share their research, to try to be able to bridge the gap between the adult population right now that missed out on a lot of the resources that we have available now. I wish there was a better effort to getting those patients because some of those people don't even know this exists and this could help them so much and so that's something that we're trying to do right now
0: yeah great job I mean it's awesome that you're doing that I think there's a huge gap I remember in our feel the beat event that we've always done annually at in Rochester Minnesota uh, the photos of the adults with HLHS together and I remember very keenly uh, it seemed like such a trivial thing uh, I took for granted but when I saw five or six of you together the first time taking a photo of all having hlhs the joy in your face of of being like this immediate club uh, and this immediate connection that that those of us on the outside couldn't really understand uh, but as you look back at those photos of those those moments you you realize there's something pretty special there when when you are able to get face to face and together so uh, i'm so glad you're doing that and i'm i'm hopeful we can continue to do whatever we can to support that effort cuz i've seen it firsthand how powerful those moments are
1: you know it's it's crazy because i remember the first time that i went to feel the beat that was the first time i had ever been in a room with multiple people that were my age like that was the first time in my life and so thank you for providing me with that because I had never experienced it before and I really think it inspired me to try to figure out ways to have that sort of thing happen more and so thank you for that that was a huge defining moment for me to be able to experience that.
0: You know, we're all in it together, and uh, you know, for us, it wasn't even intentional. It was just kind of serendipity that that was a realization. I, we had no clue that that would be such a powerful moment when we got people together. So, you know, just we're all grateful to have the chance. I know Todd and Karen Wanick were at that meeting because I have a photo of it on my computer of you and them. And and uh, thinking back of where we've come from since then to now is it's it's pretty remarkable. And I uh, I think the community is really primed for this as you're saying and and it's because of people like you can articulate the case so well um, that allows people to really be connected to to that purpose and and that mission tell me a little bit more about your advice you give to moms and dads uh, in this college transition um you know you dealt with a lot but if uh, you're on the other side of the fence what advice would you give moms and dads to help in the transition
1: so as far as helping the transition one of the biggest things I could probably suggest is getting a notebook or getting a folder or a binder of everything your kid needs, like that you have been able to show them or help them through, whether it be how to schedule appointments, what are the numbers to call, um, how to call like a cardiologist on call if they have a question, um, you know, what hospitals to go to, their medications, where they refill them. I mean, it sounds like, you know, my kids should know this, but sometimes having that and just written down is anxiety relieving for me because I don't even have to think about it. I have a document or I have a folder or a binder with everything I need in it. So it's not like I have to, you know, waste time obsessing in my mind. Do I have everything I need? Do I have everything I need? Um, I think making that with your child or, you know, maybe even making it for them is would be a huge benefit to so that way they have something while they're gone you can feel more kind of relieved to know that they have all the information they need and so if they have any questions they can just look at this binder this notebook So that would probably be one of my biggest suggestions to kind of ease everyone's um, anxiety because the transition is obviously a big transition so if there's anything to just ease it just a little bit um, I think that would be something Definitely.
0: I think you just define something we need to work on together. I would love to help support um, you branding that uh, binder for uh, for these care transitions. We do a lot of stuff in our program for infants, uh, but these are the things that we're looking to grow and to do more for for Fontans. You know, I've mentioned this a couple of times with other podcasts um, that we've done a survey of our families this last summer and found out that. The area that people feel the most neglected is, is post Fontaine, which doesn't surprise anybody. But I was actually surprised by the magnitude of which families feel neglected by their health care, by their support system, by all the things that you're highlighting um, after Fontaine, It's kind of like, okay, you got your Fontaine, You're good to go and see you five years from now. And uh, these are the, the gaps and the things that collaboratively uh, we can all divide and conquer. There's so many things to do. Um, this sounds like a really, really cool idea to, to work on and try to create a resource that is available to the community. I'd love to be part of that.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that would be something so huge and something so easy to do in a way that, um, just helps relieve, like relieve anxiety from people. And that's kind of a huge priority for, for me. I'm an anxious person. I have anxiety. Um, and that's something that I know a lot of CHDers have themselves, So if there's anything that can help relieve my anxiety just a little bit, I try to figure out a way to do it. Um, And, you know, I think that's true, especially like, you know, kind of feeling the neglect, especially in the adult population, because we feel that, you know, we see all these resources coming up, but at the same time, we wish there was more effort brought towards reaching out to us and making sure the resources are available for us, because there are a lot of amazing programs and amazing resources but a lot of them go until 18, and for us adults that are over 18, we don't have that sort of setting, and that's kind of why we tried to bring the um, single ventricle patient day, because we wanted to provide a setting no matter how old you are or how um, 14 and up are able to participate and meet each other, um, because I felt like that was lacking right now, because a lot of adults do feel neglected in the fact that what do we have right now to look forward to as far as treatment? There's, We feel that there hasn't been much on that end of it. So what are we, what are we looking forward to right now? I, I don't know. We're, so we, we should definitely talk about
0: that. And one other question on this binder before I move on from that, would you uh, advise uh, moms to put a curfew in there? Like uh, go to college, but be back in your dorm room by 11 o'clock.
1: I would say no. <laughs> I, was, I would definitely say
0: no. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that.
1: I, I, you know, my mom could have tried. She really could have tried. Um, I probably wouldn't have followed it. <laughs> so I mean, it would have just been, you know, a, probably a lie. <laughs> <laughs> so I would not advise it.
0: <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, this is this is the t- type of thing that uh, we need to try to capture and and try to go back and remember what was helpful and what wasn't helpful. Well. <laughs> Thanks so much, Meg.